0: If both sides keep some problems alive, people keep turning out on that.
1: Oh, yeah. I can get you angry about this issue forever. Um, But then if we have a compromise and immigration could be like, you know, uh, the perfect issue about this. People have been looking and agreeing on many aspects of immigration reform for years. Uh, But right now, if they don't do anything, it ends up empowering you uh, in terms of voting energy and financially Um, because your base is very, very ginned up about it. Uh, And so you almost don't want it to go away. Like if you solve the problem, then what are you going to do to whip people up?
0: Exactly. And, And so what's interesting is about a decade ago, surveys showed that Democrats and Republicans had roughly similar views about the value that they believed immigrants brought to the country. And now, 10 years later, because of this successful weaponization of the issue, the views are wildly divergent, which now leaves this as something no one wants to solve, and they'll keep raising money on it and turning out people on it. And there's something wrong with an industry that has more money flowing into it the more they don't solve the problems.
1: It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation, former CEO of a multi-million dollar business, and now political reformer and author of a tremendous book called The Politics Industry, Catherine Gale. Welcome, Catherine.
0: I am so happy to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I learned so much from your book that you co-authored with Michael Porter, who's one of the grand fathers, I guess maybe godfathers, he doesn't want to sound old, are <laughs> like the godfathers of uh, management consulting and business wisdom. And the way you both approached what's going wrong with uh, our political system was to me so spot on. But I want to start way, way earlier, which is how the heck did you come to this sort of work? Uh, you know, I, I looked at your background where you worked in business for a long time uh, it seems like, and even started and ran your own, your own company.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I really ended up here precisely because most of my career really was in business, and ended up having this particular take on the on the politics industry because most of my career was in for profit industry. And really, how it how it went is. I, I mean, a long time ago, growing up, I was all about politics. And then eventually, you know, I was in business and I, I got really engaged again because I cared about the direction of the country. I cared about the policies. And, and I now had a daughter, since then a son. And, you know, you're, it's sort of prototypical, which is what is the world we're leaving to our children and how are things going? And it's, it didn't take too long after pretty much intense engagement, to be disappointed with the results out of Washington, D.C. And so I went through what I call my five stages of political grief, which was sort of my turn of, what, how could we fix this? Oh, we need better candidates. Oh, that doesn't work. We need better policy. Oh, we have good policies. No one will pass it. Oh, we need a better culture where people wanna to work together. Oh, they say they wanna to work together, but they really don't. In the end, they vote the same way oh, I know we need independent candidates that aren't beholden to the duopoly. Shoot, they can't get elected. So those are the first four stages of grief. And finally, it was made clear to me that you know politics isn't broken. Washington isn't broken. It's working how it's designed to work, which is to say that we have a systems problem and I read this phenomenal book by Mickey Edwards, a former Republican congressman who wrote about the parties versus the people. And he brought forth to me this systems argument, and I have never looked back. Now, it's actually quite embarrassing in the sense that it took me that long to figure it out, because everything is a systems challenge, really, right? In our businesses, we're trying to figure out what are the systems, what are the incentives, what's the behavior that follows those incentives? And when we see a problem, we don't hope for change. We don't get a new leader on top of a totally uh, dysfunctional business processes and think that, you know, if our company meetings are more inspirational, then our business processes are sort of not going to suck anymore. You know, we think we should fix that. And yet in politics, we've never looked at it with the same analytical
1: view. So I got the sense from reading your book that um, you started out on a kind of a progressive left-leaning bent uh, politically. And then Michael kind of came with the um, sort of right-leaning. And so between the two of you, you felt like, look, this is nonpartisan, which I agree with. Um, But I just wanted to rewind to when you were younger, um, and it it seemed like you were highly engaged politically. Um, Were there particular candidates that you liked or didn't like? Uh, How would you classify yourself at that time?
0: Uh, growing up, I was absolutely Republican. I grew up in a Republican area, a Republican family. I remember picking up the Gerald Ford button that had been discarded at my elementary oh, yeah. school on the side. Oh, you know what's funny
1: is because you and Michael described this thing and I wasn't sure which was which.
0: <laughs> oh, did he? Okay. Well, he is a conservative as well. But point B, I grew up as a Republican. I picked, it was fifth grade and I picked up the Gerald Ford button. I was so you know sad that he had lost. And And I continued into high school, at which point I definitely consider myself a libertarian. And eventually, um, when I got back involved as sort of in my professional adult life, I lived in Chicago and I chose to work with then state senator, you know, Barack Obama. And so I got involved as a Democrat. You know, there's only two sides. I actually would not First of all, I describe myself now as politically homeless. I would tell you that even then I was politically homeless if you wanted to actually map my policy views against what the parties say they're for, which of course we know is also different than what they get done. But I'm not, I'm actually, um, I mean, I'm still so politically homeless, but I'm very fiscally conservative. I was deeply concerned about the debt and the deficit. I was waiting for the grand bargain. In the Obama administration, watching every day like it was the you know biggest drama going on, um, and disappointed when we couldn't get that done. So, long story short, I'm really a true independent, and Michael, my co-author from Harvard, is what he calls a Massachusetts Republican. And if you think about that, that's you know Mitt Romney and Charlie Baker, these Republican governors of of blue states. Uh, there's a bit of a well, not just a bit. There's quite a bit of pragmatism in Massachusetts state politics so so we come together more from the business angle and from the solving problems angle and from less of an ideological religion place and more of a look at these things that aren't working we have a lot going for us in this country. We must be able to solve these. We can't look at two decades and say, oh, yeah, we still did nothing about that.
1: I come from a similar background where I ran a private company. It doesn't sound like it was as big as uh, Gale Foods. um, But there's like a similar orientation where you're there you're leading a team of people you have problems and you're like all right like how do we try to move the organization forward how do we solve that problem how do we grow revenue how do we get more customers how do we um, reduce expenses and there's this entire constant uh, atmosphere of objectivity that suffuses the place because if you're a small private company you're not allowed to lie to yourself, really. <laughs> like if, you, if you lie to yourself, then things are going to go poorly for your business uh, pretty quickly. Um, and it, it sounds like that was like a, a similar set of experiences you had because you ran a private company and I imagine uh, like there's a similar culture of, um, of data and results. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. You know, when I came into my company, it really was a turnaround situation. So we were uh, not even on a flat trajectory, you know, we were headed the wrong direction. So there was a lot of urgency. And and the internal dynamics and the management decisions that you just speak of ring true to me, but here's the other point that I'll bring up. Are the pressure on us, you as CEO of your, of your test prep company, me as CEO of Gale Foods, is given in large part by the marketplace, which is to say, oh, if my customers don't like these products, or they don't like the price or the quality or whatever, it's not working, they're not going to buy from me because they have other choices. And if eventually, you know, they're so dissatisfied, but they don't have enough other choices, a new competitor is going to come in this market to say, we can make, you know, the products Catherine makes, I I made a Sort of high tech dairy products, so dairy products that were shelf stable, nachos and diet drinks and uh, yogurt smoothies and things. And but so someone else can come in the market and offer that product better, and then we're done. You know, I mean, we can come back, but point being, revenues go down. We're accountable to our customers. And what ended up happening when I was sort of wrestling with this system's problem is I was doing my company strategy, and I was saying hey, how come I have to serve my customers in order to keep and grow my business? That's the connection. And in politics, our elected officials, let's say in Congress, uh, there is not a connection between serving the public interest, doing what the citizens need their government to do, and getting reelected. Those things are not connected. And the second thing that's not connected is, how come 90% of citizens are sort of regularly surveyed as being dissatisfied with Congress, and yet, and dissatisfied with both parties, you know, over 50% think we need a new third party, but we never get any new competition. How come?
1: Yeah, it's like a marketplace where market dynamics don't apply, like like the kind of business physics that you expect, or the market dynamics uh, just don't apply because uh, of a number of reasons that you lay out with with uh, Michael in your book. How did you connect with Michael on this book, which I thought was a very impressive work and really important? Uh, like, how did how did the two of you decide? You know what, there needs to be a book on the politics industry, and I'm going to write half of it, you're going to write half of it, Uh, you know, uh, like, how did that come about?
0: Well, actually, I developed politics industry theory, beginning in 2013, when I was still full time running my company, and it came out of my company strategy project when I was using Michael Porter's five forces to do this strategy project for this high tech dairy foods company. And that was when all these key epiphanies came. So I already had uh, sort of the five forces completed and understood the dysfunction and the election system and the legislative machinery and everything. But I almost, it was almost like I just found it interesting for myself. You know, I wasn't intending to write on it or do anything. It was just like, oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. Then after I sold my company, because I knew some uh innovations and changes we need in the system, I wanted to work on those. I started working on them and couldn't really get business people engaged. They were MIA. And it goes back to what we said at the beginning. It's almost like these business people felt that, you know, Congress and politics was totally irrational and they just couldn't get their mind around how they could ever make a difference over there because it was inconceivable to them how they keep doing what they're doing. And I decided that I needed to write a business case. I needed to write a thesis for investment, not of money, although that too, but of time and engagement that would appeal to all the you know, business people in the country to understand, no, 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 politics is every bit as rational, and the actors in they are rational the same way they are in our business. And if we look at systems, instead of the fight, the drama, the, the front end, we can figure out how to fix it. And so I wanted to write it and use the five forces and everything. And I actually asked Michael to join me as my co-author, really just as a favor so that... Did you you know
1: Michael at that time? Yeah, I knew him.
0: Yes. Actually, he worked with me on my company strategy. So I'd done the five forces with the Michael Porter, you know, but we... Hadn't worked on politics. He wasn't involved in politics. That was not his thing.
1: So, Michael Porter wrote a seminal business book um, called Five Forces that ended up becoming this management consulting framework for business problems. And so, what he suggested was look, when you r- arrive at a, a, a business a set of decisions, then you should examine the five forces that go into that situation. And so, those five forces, uh, I'm going to miss at least one of them. So, I'm going to supply a couple and then you can fill out the, the other three. Um, So one's competitors, two is suppliers, uh, three is substitutes, four is... And then go ahead and give us four and five.
0: The ones you missed are the barriers to entry and the channels. And the five forces says, how is the power and the value in this industry divided up? And on what basis is it divided up? And that's what we end up seeing using these five forces is that the customers in the politics industry don't have much of the power or the value.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep... that's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you, back in 2013, you started uh, musing to yourself, you know what, like the the business uh business case analysis that we use actually would apply to politics. So you'd look up and say, okay, um, who, what are the channels? Uh, what are the barriers to entry? The barriers to entry are incredibly high <laughs> in, 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 in politics. I guess that, there is that.
0: I, I, I think you can be an exhibit for us, although candidly, you really got incredibly far given the barriers to entry, but we can Go into that more, too.
1: Well, well, even then, and we can go into this, Catherine, but um, even then, like there were people that sometimes asked me, it's like, hey, why would you run uh, as a Democrat as opposed to an independent or some other things? Um, and often I would give them a very practical answer and say, look, if you run as an independent, uh, you have zero chance. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so when you talk about the barriers to entry, it's like I, I had barriers to face running within the party system. Um, and those barriers were significant but I, as you suggest you know we managed to overcome a significant number of them um but I looked at the barriers for let's say an independent run as did someone like Mark Cuban who you know I spoke to on the podcast and whatnot and those barriers are uh essentially insurmountable if you were to to, to put it in those terms even for someone like Mark who is looking at potentially you know like um Spending millions of dollars. Let's note,
0: even for someone like Donald Trump, who originally considered running with the third-party Reform Party.
1: Yeah, and that's one reason why, like my conversation with Justin Amash, you know, I mean, which I thought was uh, fascinating on several levels. But uh, there, there are, uh, there's a very, very steep drop off after Democrat and Republican in American political life. Uh, you know, like depending upon your context, you would suggest, um, you know, the biggest uh, third parties, so to speak, would be the green party or socialist party or, uh, libertarians. Um, uh, and then there's this classification of independent that is actually very significant. I, uh, more people self-identify now as independent as either Democrat or Republican. The reality is that most of those independents vote pretty consistently for either Democrat or Republican, but they're, they are, um, you know, officially independent, but there is no independent party. Uh, and, uh, you said earlier that over half of Americans now kind of wish there was a third party. Um, But this is not an environment where uh, that actually ends up manifesting itself in a viable third party because uh, the two-party system is essentially um, entrenched and uh, it makes it very, very difficult for a third party to arise. Um, So so these are some of the things that um, you know that you point out in in your book. So I just want to say that you know, thank you for saying that I overcame some barriers. But I looked at other barriers and was like, you know, I'm I'm not dumb enough to think <laughs> that, 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 that that those barriers are manageable.
0: Yeah, and it's it's looking at these barriers is important because uh, you know, again, in a private industry, in many cases, you would love for it to be very difficult for new competitors to you know, get started against you because you can sort of have higher prices um, if you have a protected industry. And but you still usually have to serve your customers. But in uh, in politics, you can both not do what needs doing and make a lot of money, in a sense, in the industry.
1: Yeah, your analysis was very trenchant uh, on many of these points. And you you said earlier that there is a lot of discontent with uh, Congress writ large. So right now, congressional approval ratings around the country are 21%. That is, you know, 21% of us think Congress is doing a great job. Uh, and the re-election rates for members of Congress are consistently 90% plus. Uh, I looked over the last several decades and came up with 94%. Um, so, so that's a very, very sub- significant gulf <laughs> between 21% and 94%. Uh, and and that bears out a lot of what you're describing where uh, you can be unhappy with Congress writ large, but and so you would think in a particular system, well, that would mean that they would all lose office, you know, two years two years later. But it turns out that essentially the exact opposite is true, where the vast majority of incumbents will win re-election if they decide to do uh, to run again. Uh, and so then you ask, well, why is that? And that's one of the things you guys go into in the book is you try and break down the mechanics as to why it is that incumbents will win 94% of the time?
0: Yeah, you know, here's the thing that's interesting. A, I came to politics industry theory, you know, and figuring out this competition lens and everything because I was in business. But the other thing that I brought to now my full-time work in business, because I sold my, I mean, my full-time work in this political innovation, because I sold my company. The other thing I brought was, All I care about is action and results. So before I even answer this question, I want to step back for a moment. Our book, my work, my Institute for Political Innovation, everything is about driving towards the actions that people in Congress take or don't take, the results that they deliver for the country or not. So whenever we recommend a change, we have to be recommending it only based on not because it feels more democratic or it feels more fair or it feels, you know, sort of, I don't know, just nicer or anything like that. It, we want to recommend something because we think it's likely to substantively influence the likelihood that Congress solves problems for the American people. And the second thing is we don't want to talk about anything that just theoretically would make Congress solve problems for the American people, but that we can't do. As in like, let's talk about a new, a new constitution that would help Congress solve problems. Well, we can't do that. So let's not waste our time. So we don't, as a business person, you I just, I just want the results. I'm not about ideology. Um, and I, and I want, when we talk to people, if they buy in, I want there to be a path to achieving the new, you know, the new changes. You're a business
1: person. You would never recommend some pie in the sky (laughs) solution. You're looking around saying, okay. And I love the diagnosis too. You look up and say, well, what are the incentives of these actors? And you realize, and this is very similar to what Justin Amash was saying. It's like the incentive for a sitting member of Congress uh, is not necessarily to uh, stand up for some compromise solution that might move the, the ball for folks in their district, uh, their incentives are very much around going along with party leadership, uh, avoiding, avoiding a primary challenge uh, because over 80% of districts are drawn in a way that you have a safe seat. So it's either going to be very blue or very red. And so what you need to worry about is uh, making yourself a target for primary voters from within your party. Uh, and less than 20% of folks in the district will actually show up for your primary. So you have to cater to the folks who are at the ideological edge of your constituents. uh, And then you're you're trying to um, keep the edge within the edge happy to avoid a significant primary challenge. And that's where all of your incentives lie. Um, Your incentives are not trying to appeal to 51% of the people in your district, which you would think would be... Um, the incentive because it turns out your district is has been drawn in a way that uh, the D or the R is going to win, uh, you know, like nine, 90 times out of 100 or 95 times out of 100. Uh, and so you're doing what the system uh, is pushing you to do. It's just that it's not what we all imagine your incentives are. Uh, You know, we think uh, like you're supposed to, quote unquote, serve the people when really your incentives are to avoid primary challenge by the most uh, ideologically extreme 10 percent of the folks in your district. Is that a fair summary?
0: Yeah, it's so a way of looking at it is to say there's no connection between doing what needs doing for the people, for the public interest and getting reelected. But there is a connection between doing what leadership wants you to do doing what the ideological, you know, more ideologically extreme part of your party that shows up in primaries wants you to do, and doing what donors and special interests want you to do. So essentially the key for us is how can we change that design so we break this connection and we make the connection with the public interest, connect public interest and re-election. Because I want to note one thing. So many of your, well, you may have super sophisticated listeners, but I'll say, let's say writ large, so many people do have a sense about the primary, but mostly what people think is, oh, it makes people say crazy things. Like, oh, they say this to get elected. But the real thing we need to understand is What they say is not really the problem. It's, again, what they're incented to do, which you were getting at. And so what happens is when they get there, both sides, they let's put a real situation in front of us. Okay, we have a compromise bill with these complex trade-offs on immigration or health care or debt reduction. Um, And... We need to, you know, consider it. And here's kind of a bill that behind closed doors, we all agree, represents a a way to move the country forward and and some reasonable trade-offs. We don't all get what we want. Here it is. And now this Republican and this Democrat thinks, well, how do I vote on that? And no matter what they said behind closed doors, the questions you think they would ask is, is this the right idea? Is this going to move the country forward? Is this what the majority of the people in my district want? But the only question they ask is, or the first question is, will I make it back through my party primary if I vote for this? And on almost all the big issues, the answer to that question is always no for both sides because they've pushed themselves so far apart and they've politically weaponized every issue so they can turn out their base that now they're a prisoner to those weapons themselves and they can't say yes to anything rational, you can't it's compromise
1: that. because you've made it seem like uh it, it's a uh, life or death existential struggle, and there's like uh you know right or wrong on it, and so all, all of a sudden you'd be like, Yeah, it turns out the other side was had some merits on this. Uh, you know, there there are folks that will um uh be very very upset with you, um, or even uh, just
0: giving a win to the other party before the midterms or the next election, you don't want anybody to win other than your party. So, what we're seeing now is that both parties hold out for a trifecta where they control both chambers and the presidency and then push through their own agenda, which then sort of results in this tug of war both in the courts and then maybe when control switches of trying to repeal rather or replace rather than improve. And then the other party will wait them out and try to move forward. So, because they don't want the other party to have any wins to go back to the district with. Because again, if you keep, This is extraordinary. If both sides keep some problems alive, people keep turning out on that.
1: Oh, yeah. I can get you angry about this issue forever. Um, But then if we have a compromise and immigration could be like, you know, uh, the perfect issue about this. People have been looking and agreeing on many aspects of immigration reform for years. Uh, But right now, if they don't do anything, then they can animate their base around uh, like this issue and say uh, and then at this point now unfortunately we've descended into some very irrational conversations around um, uh, immigration but it it ends up empowering you uh, in terms of voting energy and financially um, because your base is very very ginned up about it uh, and so you almost don't want it to go away like if you solve the problem then what are you going to do to whip people up
0: and yeah, what are you going to do to get the campaign contributions? What are you going to do to get the turnout? What are you going to do to run the ads? You know, exactly. And, and so what's interesting is about a decade ago, surveys showed that Democrats and Republicans had roughly similar views about the value that they believed immigrants brought to the country. And now, 10 years later, because of this successful weaponization of the issue, The views are wildly divergent, which now leaves this as something no one wants to solve. And they'll keep raising money on it and turning out people on it. And there's something wrong with an industry that has more money flowing into it, the more they don't solve the problems.
1: Yeah, that's the fundamental incentive problem. It's like, look, um, we'll be very successful uh, as long as people are excited or upset uh, or donating money um, and solving the public's problems actually does not tie into our success electorally, our success financially. Uh, and that's how you wind up with a very, very dark world where uh, where at this point uh, you're better served by not actually solving some of the country's biggest problems.
0: And by, and by making them existential, which is the word you just used, making everything existential. Whereas, you know, in, it, there's this, this duopolistic thinking, and we have a duopoly, only two competitors, but then all the issues, it's either this or it's this. And I often say that, you know, that's a particular challenge. And here I'll hearken to some of the issues you've brought up, the pace of change right now means that we need an innovative government, that we need to generate new ideas, new solutions, experiment with, with new um, policy directions in order to see how we can deal with this fourth industrial revolution that we're going through. And yet our, our politics you know, does not allow us to do that. We would rather stick with, you know, just our same old ideas because there's no benefit to bringing up the new. And so I am, here's another way of saying, um, I want to say to the listeners right now, not only am I politically homeless, for example, and Michael, you know, just independent, problem-solving, thinking person, etc., Even I have no problem with, writ large, sort of over time, the Republicans or the Democrats. I don't have any problem with political parties that they could and need to exist. And I don't even have any problem with two parties. Here's the problem. The current two are guaranteed to continue to be the only two, kind of forever, regardless of what they do or don't get done on our behalf. So I say you know, to Republicans and Democrats and everybody, when we get healthy competition, it's not about annihilating people's passions or their ideologies or annihilating groups of people working together on issues. It's about making sure that the parties that end up to be the main parties are the ones that are delivering on behalf of, of you know the majority of the country, um, and and moving it forward, and so it's just altering the competition. It doesn't mean that uh, all the existing people are evil. It means that the system is really really bad.
1: The, the system makes it harder for folks to go in there and be principled and do the right thing. I mean that is what the conversation with Justin Amash uh, clearly leads you to believe, and. I agree with you that uh, in in the best possible world, we'd be able to look up and say, hey, like, what were the results of that uh, set of policies or that initiative? Uh, and then be able to hold um, political parties uh, or sets of leaders. Um, either we could celebrate them and say that was a fantastic move or, or, uh, or it wasn't. And then you have some kind of objective standard to measure them on. Um, the, you know, right, right now, because of the nature of our politics, it, it, it's become increasingly, um, non-data driven, like it's becoming increasingly argument driven. And it's like just appealing to different people's sensibilities. You have different media companies and now social media, um, just, uh, profiting from our polarization in various ways. and, And that also reinforces the, the two party dynamic, um, so you recommend a number of big changes that you think would help things, uh, including ranked choice voting, which I'm a huge fan of. And to me, uh, like ideally, both parties um, end up becoming what I would call pro-democracy uh, in in the way that you're describing it, where you have uh, you just have some very flawed incentives. And if you look up and say, I mean, here's the most basic flawed incentive. Uh, If I'm a member of Congress right now, I'm spending 30 to 70 percent of my time raising money uh, because that helps make sure I get reelected. That helps me climb the party ladder. That helps me eventually get committee positions and whatnot. And if you were to line up Americans and be like, hey... Do you like the fact that your representative is spending half their time raising money? You'd be like, no, I'd rather they spend hundred percent of their time figuring out policies or meeting their constituents' needs or the rest of it. Uh, I mean, that, that's like a pretty basic one where like most people could look up would look up. No one would say like, yeah, I love the idea of them just dialing for dollars all the time. Uh, so imagine how much more effective legislators they would be if they did not have to do that. You know, uh, so so that's like a huge step that I think most Americans would be thrilled about. Um, so what are the the big moves that you you and Michael arrived at, um, and that you recommend? And I obviously read the book, so I have a sense of them, <laughs> but but it might not be exhaustive because you do other work, uh, you know, beyond the book, and you know, you might have even discovered some new things since the book was written. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Uh, I. I think there's always more to discover, Uh, that's how it started. There are many ideas and there are many things that could be improved. But again, let's go back to business for a moment. And by the way, I'm not saying government should be run like a business. I'm saying that understanding how to get the best performance out of people and organizations deals with incentives. But point being, uh, going back (laughs) to-
1: That's very, very smart. I agree with you on both fronts.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So um, there's a saying, well, quote also, actually, from my co-author, Michael Porter, strategy is about choosing what not to do. So we, in my first publication uh, that I did actually with Michael also in 2017, I thought that I had narrowed down the recommendations. But in retrospect, I look at it and say, well, that was kind of a laundry list. So for this book, we really got to the difficult choices, which we make in business all the time. We could serve this market, bring out these 10 products, but no, we're only going to bring out two products because those are the only ones we can support and these are the best ones. So on the innovations, we um, divide our innovations into two areas. First, the things we need to change in how we vote in the elections machinery. And I call it machinery because... um, it reliably spits out behavior just as reliably as any piece of equipment in my manufacturing firm did. So the the rules of elections spit out these incentives and therefore this behavior. And then there's a second kind of machinery, which Justin Amash and you were talking about a lot, which is the legislative machinery. So the rules and process of how you get legislation passed or not spits out certain kinds of behavior and certain kinds of legislation, mostly no legislation or party legislation or bad legislation. Anyway, so we need to fix both. Um, But the first thing is how we vote. And when Strategists' Choosing What Not to Do, I've arrived absolutely at one primary recommendation. We should implement final five voting. That is a package Of two changes to how we vote the first change is let's get rid of party controlled primaries we've talked about it they push everybody too far apart so they simply cannot keep their jobs if they work together that's like saying to everybody here do your job really well you'll lose your job so that's crazy we have to change it and what one thing i love talking to all your listeners um and viewers but talking to you i say can we come together knowing that nonpartisan open primaries are every bit as important as ranked choice voting
1: That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Let's talk a little bit about what are the negative effects of party controlled primaries. So we've touched on it a little bit, and I've seen it. So uh, number one is you're going to have an incumbent from one of the two parties. Um, and so if you have a safe seat, then, and I've, I've been supporting candidates down ballot, So I've seen some of this. Um, so you can have the person get primaried from within their party. Um, and and then if they get to the general, then it's a foregone conclusion. Like, you know, you don't even need to pay attention to the general, really, in a lot of these districts, in like 80% of the districts. So you wind up with only one real challenge, to the incumbent, and that is within their party primary because you have a party-controlled primary system. Um, so by the general election, it's it's already determined who's going to win. Um, there's a quote by William Tweed uh, that said, um, uh, "That yeah, that, that that said, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating." <laughs> and so, um, so, uh, so the so the problem with the party controlled primary system is that uh, it restricts voter choice. Uh, Is is that a fair way to characterize it?
0: Again, I, I absolutely want more voter choice. But let's fast forward. I want more freedom for legislators to do what needs doing.
1: Yeah, you want a good result. Yeah.
0: Again, the real problem is not what they're saying in the primary or who even makes it through the primary. It's what they do once they're there. We if we had if we got rid of party controlled primaries some of the talented passionate elected officials will still win but they will now have the freedom to do what needs doing okay so so that's one of the problems though, with the party primaries but here's the another thing that i think you might you in particular might find really interesting i don't know if you'll call this part in my book cuz it's short i'm working a logger Uh, longer article. It's called The Dual Currencies of Politics.
1: Oh, yeah, I found this fascinating. When you talk about votes and money, um, and that money is actually a better currency because if you get extra, you get to keep it. Uh, And more of it's always better. Um, Whereas voting, if you get extra votes, then you don't get to roll them over to the next election.
0: There's a lot of nuance to this. So uh, again, remember, we're looking at now politics as an industry. And so we're trying to find out what's going on in this industry. And here's a lot of times I'm talking about how it's similar to the for-profit industry, but now I wanna talk about how it's different. Politics is the only industry I've come across that really has two currencies. So think of it this way. Some customers in politics pay with votes, voters. Some customers, a much smaller number pay with money, donors and special interests who are also donors. And in large part, So we think a lot of times we have a money in politics problem. And I want to say here, we don't. What we have is a relative value problem. Like we have an exchange rate problem. Like, you know, the dollar being worth way more than, you know, whatever the the euro is worth or something. Point being, in politics right now, the currency of money is worth unbelievably much more than the currency of votes. And I'll give you a couple examples. So as you said, first of all, there's a limited utility because you only need one vote more than the other person to win, the other, and you can't carry them over, whereas money has no upside limit on its utility. But a couple other things. The only time votes really have any value is in the party primary but only in half of the primaries, right? Because if, if the district is gerrymandered or even naturally occurring a red district, the only votes that have any value are the voters that turn out to vote in the red Republican primary. So it's actually, if, if voter turnout in a primary is 20%, but you know 10% of the people are turning out here, their votes have power and have value. And then when you get to the general election, each vote is sort of worth zero because it's already decided.
1: Determined, yeah.
0: And you, don't, you also don't care if you turn off lots of people with the currency of votes, because again, even if, even if you made everybody so angry that only 10 people came out for the election and there were 10 votes, as long as you got six and the other person got four, it's no problem for you. Whereas you want to keep turning out more and more people sort of to be involved in money. But you're fine if you depress all the people who are so disgusted with, with you know, uh, politics that they stay home. So, one of the cha- so whenever we're looking at the innovations I'm talking about, I'm looking at the behavior it's going to incent. But I'm also always looking back at how does it change the relative value of votes to money? And I'm going to tell you a secret about this money and politics problem. You know why there's so much money? It's just because it's a really good investment. The ROI is really good.
1: So the, the ROI we... on lobbying, I saw, I saw in a study. It was, it was something like seventeen to one. I mean, like where, where oh, the yeah, heck that's... can you get? Where the heck can you get a seventeen hundred percent return on just about anything you do in business? I mean, that, that's like, <laughs> you know, like if you're a rational business person, you're investing.
0: There you go, rational, rational behavior. So here's the thing: what if we were able to artificially decrease by a factor of ten? the amount of money in politics, you know, so all the lobbyists are spending uh, you know, one, uh, 10% of what they used to spend, but we leave all the existing rules and incentives for how people get elected and the elections machinery and legislative machinery intact. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna essentially make it 10 times cheaper for the self-interested money to get the same result. So here's the key make votes more powerful than money, make that currency the one that matters. And then it won't make all money go out. But the point is, if the votes are more powerful, you can't buy with money what votes don't want.
1: Yes, that's the dream.
0: Therefore, therefore then, the money that goes in you know, will, will lessen if it's not at all connected with what's good for the country, because you won't be able to get the ROI on it. You won't get the return yeah. on it. People making decisions make Why rational play? decisions with their I can't get money. what I want. <laughs> exactly. And, so, and and that's and that's fair and, and rational. And so I am always telling people, stop going after the money in politics and go, and making it less powerful and go after making voters more powerful and go after making general election voters more powerful. And having an open primary where everybody's on the same ballot and then we'd have five people advance to the general election. And then you rank choice voting in the general, which you know we can come back to the package. That means that the election is never decided in the primary. It's always decided in the general. And all of a sudden, every voter matters because you're using ranked choice voting. Even if the district is deeply red or deeply blue, that's so much less of a problem with this system. We sort of leapfrog over the need for gerrymandering reform. Certainly not fair gerrymandering and everything, but it's not the gating factor. Let's do final five voting, open top five primaries plus rank choice voting in the general elections and in the general elections alone and you're going to cho- you're going to rank these five candidates and then we'll elect someone with the majority of you know the broadest appeal to the most number of voters but the main reason and that's what a lot of people that like RCV talk about is how it's more fair and democratic and it is those things and I'm for those things but for the purpose of caring about results that make a difference in real people's lives the main And like the the biggest, hugest benefit of ranked choice voting is that it's it eliminates the barrier, the biggest barrier in the politics industry to the new competition, which is the spoiler argument
1: oh yeah don't vote for that person you know you're gonna waste your vote etc like you get rid of it so ranked choice voting gets rid of the spoiler effect it gets it, it diminishes the incentives to campaign negatively because if you trash someone then you both look bad and then <laughs> the person in third place ends up uh uh coming up um it makes it so that the ultimate winner has at least some kind of level of support among uh, more than fifty percent of the folks. Which right now, if you end up with you know split votes, like you could have some person that no one really, well, not no one, but less than fifty percent of people like, um, ends up winning plurality winner. Like happened with the governor in Maine, or to some extent with Donald Trump during the primary process, because there were there were places he won uh, with less than fifty percent um, during the nominating process. Uh, so this, in both, this in
0: both political parties a lot of times the the presidential primary you know favors these plurality winners and you don't get sort of the person who's everybody's second choice but nobody's first choice
1: yeah so this was an appealing vision to me the top five uh and plus ranked choice voting in part because i was trying to imagine if you were an independent minded person who was considering running for office and you got some people behind you uh, and let's say there's an incumbent Uh, let's call, you know, it could be either Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter for this example. But you think to yourself, okay, if I get enough people behind me, all I have to do to make it to the general is be in the top five. Uh, And that seems kind of achievable. Like I just need to go out and get enough votes to be in the top five. And then if he goes, if I do get in the top five, then we all contend in a ranked choice voting format. And then if I get a lot of people behind me, not even as their first choice necessarily, but like I become everyone's second choice because, um, you know, I, I'm uh, common sense and suggesting things that people like, and you know like uh, it, it seems like I'm going to try to deliver a- along with what most of us want. Uh, so that that's like a very appealing vision. Uh, and so I, I'm, I've always been a fan of ranked right choice voting. And I think you and Michael helped open my mind to the fact that the primary system is a huge component of who can successfully run for office and then what their incentives are after they get there, to your point.
0: And now we know that the primary system is a huge reason why votes have so much less power than money.
1: Yeah, that too. Uh, because, like you said, it, it's very constrained because if you're not registered in that party and one of like the, the folks who shows up to that primary, then you're just showing up to the ballot being like, well, I don't even really have. And and this is one thing you really do have to reflect on for a moment, is that for the average person in that district, they don't really have a meaningful choice uh, because if they weren't able to participate in the, the nominating party's primary, then they're just showing up to the ballot box and being like, okay, I can vote for one of these two people, but one of them is almost guaranteed to win. Uh, and it's one reason why people uh, write off politics because they're like, my vote doesn't matter. Like, uh, in, like, in, like uh, this is a waste of my time. Uh, you know, when people have that perspective, um, I look at them and I think like, this person may be rational. You know, it's like, there's some people being like, no, you're a jerk for thinking that. It's like, well maybe they're onto something, you know, it's like, if you had a system where it was truly irrational, uh, then you could hold people to a higher standard, because you'd be like, your vote really does matter, because you can actually make a difference, uh, you know, and um, Right now, I tell people, hey, look,
0: if you only have time to vote once, just vote on primary day. Like, if you somehow can't do twice, just vote on primary day. And, and, And I also, you know, people are often saying, we need to have universal voting, we need to have mandatory voting, we need to Increase turnout. And I say, why are we artificially trying to increase turnout? You know the best way to increase turnout? Make turning out matter. Make the vote matter. Just like I'm saying, the best way to reduce money in politics is give it less return on investment. The best way to increase turnout is to give it more return on investment. And so that's why we we have to stop going at fixing symptoms and we have to go at the roost cause, which is misaligned incentives. And I want to I want to say a couple of things again, based on what I really think. You were uh, your race in the presidential demonstrates, although I'll say also very um, I want to tell people, A, you have to care about primaries. But the second thing I want to tell people is let's focus on Congress because a mythical president, no matter how extraordinary, will not change the results out of Washington, D.C., all these Congress people, senators, and House members who have to keep getting reelected over and over. That's the key linchpin to begin turning the ship. But here's what we need. Remember, I said before we need innovation, right? All these changes. Competition, healthy competition, is not about changing who wins, it's about changing what the winners are incented to do. And there's another piece to that. In healthy competition, losers can also influence the results the same way in industry. So what happens in technology, right? Maybe an entrepreneur comes up with a really great technological improvement. Now, maybe they grow that into a company and they sort of get existing companies out of the marketplace. Like, you know, uh, we don't have Kodak or Xerox really so much anymore, right? Or they get the idea and it gets bought by one of the bigger companies. But again, the consumer gets the benefit of that technology. Or they have that idea and one of the other providers or all of them figure out a similar way to deliver the same benefit to the consumer. So the consumer benefits, even if the person who came up with the original idea doesn't end up you know, with sort of the winning company. Um, and that's what happens in good competition. So if we go back to, for example, 1992, Ross Perot, so I'm assuming lots of your listeners are too young to remember this. I am not too young. Uh, Ross Perot ran in 1992 um, against Bill Clinton and George Bush. And he only got 19% of the vote and zero electoral votes in November. And he was an independent. But he ran on debt and deficit reduction. This is me making his charts. He had all these TV commercials showing how our debt was rising, 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 rising. And... um, He lost, but the American people won because Perot's competition forced both sides, Republicans and Democrats, who previously didn't care, it was not part of their platform that they were going to do something about the debt and deficit, to care about it. And it put the electoral pressure on them to work together to solve the issue, which means the Clinton administration was the last time we had budget surpluses. And when Perot died last year, Paul Begala, who was one of Clinton's top advisors, um, wrote an op-ed. I wrote one too, but his was, you know, sort of more famous than mine. And he said, because he had a better quote, he had an inside, you know, view. He said, I am not sure we ever would have balanced the budget without the pressure Perot and his voters brought to the issue. So one of the reasons we need competition is because we need to get new innovative policy ideas. So this is what you were bringing to the democratic primary. Strategies about choosing what not to do, you had a lot of focus on the freedom dividend, the universal basic income, and brought that idea to a lot of people who had never heard of it before. Now, we don't know where that will eventually go. And I'm not taking a position on it at this moment. But what I am saying is you injected
1: yeah, that was part of the value. I said, look, I'm either going to win or the winners are going to sound a lot like me. <laughs> like that, that was the goal. Uh,
0: what I predict is when you have five people competing in every race, some people will run and they will know they're unlikely to win. But they may want to bring forward a constituency or uh, a problem or a, or a solution and really campaign on that. And if it gets a lot of voter support, it will influence the winners and what they do. It doesn't mean that now these winners are captive to someone who got you know, 12% of the vote, it means if there's validity. And if that validity grows over time, by more and more candidates running around the country on those same things.
1: If you had a ranked choice voting system, and there were 12% of the folks in your district that were really into something, you'd pay attention to it. Because you're like, well, like, if I pay attention to it, that's going to make me their second choice. So let, let's do it. I mean, like that, like that, it's like better incentives. It's like a real poll
0: not a behind-the-scenes poll about who likes you know, universal basic income or who likes um, you know, the Simpson-Bulls debt deficit uh, you know, reduction plan. You see who's voting for that. Um, yeah. and And what you'd see is various ideas would come in, and then if they never really got traction, sort of those candidates and those things would sort of fade out and then come back later or never come back, and we'll have other new ideas. And yes, we'll have some fringes because here's the really important thing. I'm not proposing a squishy middle. I think we need more moderates to be able to work together. You just, mean, but also, you just
1: need more dynamism and innovation. You need more yes. inclusion and voices because right now, like, you know, the marginal folks just show up and be like, well, I, I can't do anything in this system. <laughs> and so you wind up with very little innovation.
0: If we get basically a range of ideas and candidates, And we have innovation and we have fringes because new ideas often come originally from what were at the time fringes both in business in politics in america when our idea of having a representative democracy was the first right we were fringe we weren't normal okay so you have that combined now with a system where when you're legislating you're incented to still work with people who had a different idea to find a solution. So we get the benefit of both things: all the innovation and and uh, new ideas and debate, as along with incentives to work together to make the trade-offs.
1: That's like I, I love the idea. I love the idea of elevating the value of votes. Like if you look at the exchange rate, I think that's very. Powerful and profound.
0: So, the open top five primaries plus ranked choice general elections, we put that together in a package and we call it Final Five Voting. I think it's helpful the same way you wanted to have Freedom Dividend. You know, we want to have a name. That it's catchy. Can,
1: final Five Voting, catchy. <laughs>
0: healthy competition like Final Four, you know. So, we want to have people saying Final Five Voting equals healthy competition, more choice, more voice, better results, you know final five voting, that's the system we need. So if we can, uh, the more and more people that decide to say that's what they want, it'll make a big difference.
1: There's a lot of energy around rank choice voting right now, which there should be. Um, and I think there's a lot of energy around open primaries too, because people um, like dislike their the current lack of uh, input um, and choice. So to me, uh, final five voting kind of incorporates two things that people already seem very excited about um so you know like so just painting a picture where it's like if you're right choice voting you have open primaries and final fives kind of this uh beautiful uh combination um and it also stipulates a number of candidates that is a little different than what other people are doing like a lot of the open primaries they're saying top two or something like like top three And, and i've been convinced Uh, that five is a good way to go because you'd like to have some more options, um, especially if you have a ranked choice voting format.
0: And because as we said, we don't need just three candidates who could really any one of them for sure win in a sense. You need also, you know, people that have small, newer ideas, newer constituencies.
1: reforming primaries, ranked choice voting, that would be a game changer in terms of the level of innovation and ideas and dynamism uh, and true democracy uh, that would exist. And then you had this whole second pillar, which is trying to improve the legislative process itself. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear, especially after you listen to you know my conversation with, with Justin Amash, like what can we do to improve the legislative process? Because it does not seem to be functioning at a high level.
0: Legislative machinery is not a term I made up. I discovered it in a 1940s publication. And this academic wrote about legislative machinery as being the norms, rules, and practices that govern how the legislative process is run. And and then I, of course, adopted that, yes, because it spits out the behavior and the results just as reliably as any machine in my factory, as I said before. So I want to just give an example. Uh, let's see, okay, here, pocket constitution. It's small, I mean, it fits in a pocket, right? Sorry for this thing. Let's see if we can do this for your voters, okay. If I want to print the House rules book here today in my office, I'll put these three reams of paper in my printer and press print. And then the House rules will come out. And if I want to, when I'm done printing that, print the Senate rules, I'll put these three reams of paper in my printer.
1: I'm sure every member of Congress uh, has memorized uh, their, their respective rules. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they poured through it, uh, you know, painstakingly uh, before they were sworn in.
0: When when we talk about this, I mean, who would run anything functional?
1: <laughs> I mean, if you want
0: to talk about bureaucracy or overregulation or whatever, who would run anything functional? The point about that is mostly to say everything we need to change, you guys, is not really the stuff that's in the Constitution. The Constitution gives states the power to make the rules of the election. The Constitution gives Congress the power to make its own rules, and that's when Congress made these six reams of paper. Um, so let's change the rules of election so we can tell Congress to change these rules of how they do, you know this business that's our business that we've hired them to do. Um, and but if I go to again what Justin Amash was saying, the fact is there's a lot of rules, clearly, um, in quantity in the House and Senate, but there, some of the most powerful rules and practices and the norms are not even the ones that are written down. And, for example, where we are right now is a period in history where the power of the majority leader in the Senate... And the Speaker in the House is virtually absolute. And we're all concerned about the power of the presidency. Some people want to have more or have less or whatever. But it's shocking how little visibility there is into the power of the leaders of the two chambers who can, all by themselves, whenever they want, say, I'm not going to allow a vote on that. And... I actually always, uh, when I'm speaking, I often give, you know, a Hastert rule example. So Denny Hastert was um, from Illinois, a House Speaker a long time ago. And he sort of, this rule is, this norm is named after him, which is Hastert started saying, you know, I'm not going to let us vote on anything unless a majority of the majority party wants that bill to pass, which is to say, you know, a majority of the Speaker's party. And... So that's now I, you know, I've always said that's how all speakers run this practice. But actually, just yesterday I talked with a former member of Congress and he corrected me and he said, Oh, the Hastert, he didn't say it quite this way, but essentially, yeah, the Hastert rule, old news. Now the new rule, which you can call, you know, either the Ryan or Pelosi rule, is let's not bring anything to the floor unless we can pass it with our party alone.
1: Yeah, that's a banana standard. And but and that and that's what Justin articulated, and I was like, that is bananas. Uh because like at, at that point you're foreclosing the vast majority of bills and proposals. Uh and you just need in this case like the vast majority of your members to be on board with something to even raise it. And so then everyone would chill out a lot of the time, be like, well we have nothing to vote on because you know and and then If you can propose it, then there's no reason for anyone to even opine on it. Because it's like, you can pass this with your own party. And so Justin was saying, it's like, well, if I'm in the minority party, like, I really can't do anything. I don't matter. It's like, uh, you know, half the time you're going to present the legislation to me, I don't even have time to read it.
0: Not just if you're in the minority party, you can't really do anything. Virtually everybody other than leadership can't do anything. Because leadership decides which bill they're going to get forward, and it doesn't. And then they say, you know, sort of to their caucus. You can choose this or you can choose exactly this. You, know, you can have A or you can have A. I mean, they don't even really work with junior members in their own party.
1: We need to publicize this rule and give it a name um, so that people can be um, you know, cognizant of it.
0: When we're talking to Republicans, we should call it the Pelosi-Ryan rule. And when we're talking to Democrats, we should call it the Ryan-Pelosi rule. And, you know, meaning we should because everybody thinks if it's well, so Paul,
1: Paul Ryan adopted it first and then Nancy Pelosi uh, maintained it. So uh, no, it the actually, Ryan... I think
0: Pelosi started really running it that way uh, before when she was speaker before Ryan.
1: Um, so then it is unclear who you name it after. Maybe something that actually gives it like a technical term. It's like uh, the guaranteed passage rule is that we're not going to vote on anything unless uh, we we can pass it just with our party. Um, or the majority passage rule. Anyway, I'll I think we should call Frank um, Luntz,
0: you know, the poster. He helps figure out what language the
1: names are. Sure. Yeah. Let's ask Frank. Let's ask Frank. But but there, there definitely needs to be a, a, like more awareness around this rule, because when Justin told me about it, I was like, that is awful. Uh, it, it would it would be so disenfranchising for, as you're suggesting, the vast majority of legislators, because, uh, you know, it's like if it gets brought, then you're just there to rubber stamp it. Um, and if and if you are a differing opinion, then you're going to end up voting no, because you're like, well, I, I didn't even have time to review this. And like, it's just getting sprung on me. And it turns out that uh, you can pass it without me. I know that because you're raising it. So, of course, I'm going to vote no. And so you end up uh, destroying whatever vestiges of bipartisanship might be left.
0: Exactly, and you know that's why sometimes people say, you know, Catherine, uh, these are good ideas, these changes you want to make, but politicians aren't going to make these changes because they like how it works. And I say, well, actually, for example, with Congress, which is what we're focused on changing the rules for, leadership likes how the rules work. But actually, if you want to talk about job satisfaction, virtually everybody else, all the other hundreds of people would have better jobs if they went to Washington, D.C. with more freedom if their bosses were their district instead of a small number of behind-the-scenes power brokers. I mean, I, brokers. I agreed
1: with you, Catherine, but you you heard Justin's characterization that scared the heck out of me when he was like, it's actually easier just to keep your head down and go with the flow, which which is painful. Um, I, I like to believe that there are more folks that are on the page you're describing, which is they'd rather go in and be able to exercise their own judgment and leadership.
0: I did think that was something I didn't agree with Justin on. Now, you know, to be humble about it, he works there and I don't. So he, again, sort of to expand on that, he's saying that people like not being in charge because they're not accountable for anything and they just say yes or no according to what leadership tells them. And I say, first of all, I don't, I don't agree. I think more people that I talk to really do want to make things happen and go into public service for many of the right reasons. And then, you know, that's sort of their only, they can choose lockstep allegiance to their party or they can choose not being there. So they just choose lockstep. But I think they'd like to choose something else. And here's the point. If they don't want to choose something else, once we have the new election rules, There'll be new competition that comes in that wants the job under the better legislative machinery and the better elections rules because it'll be a good job to have and you can make a difference people don't a lot of people don't want a job where they can't do what needs doing and where they have to say things they don't believe and where they have to promise things they know they're never going to get done
1: yeah it would be certainly um incredibly demoralizing for me, let's say, if I showed up and was like, hey, it turns out I, I you know, I'm uh, talking a big game when I'm around my constituents to the press. But in reality, I'm just going to rubber stamp stuff. I mean, like, like that, I, I would not be able to deal with that. Um, I hope you're right, Catherine, I hope we have the opportunity to see how how right you are.
0: I, well, and, and again, if I'm wrong, there'll be new people who do want to do the thing that needs doing. Um, but if I'm wrong about the existing people, but people really do want the system to work.
1: And, and let me say too, there, there is not enough media attention being paid to some of these mechanics we're talking about too. Like the fact that I had to find out from Justin Amash, <laughs> you know, or, or you had to find out from your person.
0: This is what's fascinating. The fact that you had to find out from Justin Amash after you've just been really competing at the highest level competition in the land of politics, and yet what wasn't apparent to you is also not apparent to other, not maybe everybody, but to others in that field about what's really constraining the system in Washington, DC. So as long as we don't understand, we can't fix. I talk about this as kind of the emperor has no clothes time which is we have to you know, finally look around and get that the emperor has no clothes but uh, we have to really understand where that came from. And, um, and you know, I'll say something else um, relative to the motivations of people who serve. The forward in, uh, in Michael's and my book was written by.
1: By a couple of members of Congress who are bipartisan. Yeah. So that they, they wanted to be better.
0: What I love about it is they're both uh, veterans. So Mike Gallagher, the Republican in the Marines and Chrissy, the Democrat, Chrissy Houlihan. Uh, from pennsylvania mike gallagher from wisconsin and uh so we have marines and air force and they essentially say in there in the forward is you know we served our country in the military we love we're our. we're trying country. to serve
1: but this is making it impossible for us to do so and like why are we like supposed th- to throw rocks at each other we kind of like each other
0: <laughs> yeah, and why were we on the same team the same for america team when we're in the military and we show up here for the same reasons and, and we're like we're not even allowed to eat, eat with places. each
1: other or talk to each other yeah the whole thing it seems like a bizarro high school <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, except they, it's like a high school of adult millionaires where you show up and it's like you should go sit over there um yeah, i'm sorry <laughs> and no but they said they
0: want to make it different and so those are the people and, and there's justin Amash telling the truth he wants to make it different and I have, here's an here's a op-ed. I don't know if we can see it, but here's an op-ed it. in Milwaukee Journal Sentinel from a state senator, uh, Dale Kuenga, a Republican in Wisconsin, and a state representative, Daniel Reamer, a Democrat uh, from Wisconsin. And they wrote an op-ed jointly in May of this year in Wisconsin when the national view of Wisconsin was division, division, division. And they wrote this op-ed, where they came out in support of final five voting because they are the co-sponsors of the final five voting bill in Wisconsin, and they said in there, everybody thinks we're divided, and yet look at all the things we agree on, and look at all the motivations that we have, you know, to change people's lives. And so they said, also they said we take seriously now that they understand, uh, you know, as so many people haven't paid attention to that each state legislator is in charge of these election rules for Congress. So they're saying, we can't just blame Congress because we're in the legislature and we made these, well, people before us made these dysfunctional rules of elections, party primaries, plurality voting. So now we need to be involved in changing it. And I see these people all the time. I just think we need to provide space and support for the people who are, the existing elected uh, politicians who are coming out to say it needs to be different.
1: So what are you seeing, uh, like what does the movement look like right now and what gives you the most optimism or concern?
0: What gives me the most optimism is seeing people like Dale and Danny in Wisconsin from different parties write that op-ed, seeing uh, Chrissy and Mike write that op-ed, seeing in Wisconsin our leadership group of business and community leaders includes Democrats and Republicans. So, uh, for example, our first big meeting when we were moving for this in Wisconsin, we had 400 people in a ballroom and two of our uh, founding You know, leaders stood up. One is, uh, you know, a tall, uh, younger entrepreneurial uh, Republican, and another is um, a petite uh, progressive funder in Wisconsin. And they sort of stood up and said, um, Andy said, You know, I held a fundraiser for Trump in my home in the 2016 election. And Lyme said, And I am, you know, a very large progressive fundraiser. And then they said, we don't agree on much. But guess what? We agree on this, that the system is broken, that the rules of the game are the reason the system's not working for anyone. And we're going to stay united on what these rules should be, even while we will continue to have different policy views. We're going to donate to different candidates. We're going to vote different ways, but we're going to believe in rules that incent whoever ends up getting elected to work together to make this happen. So here's where the, where's the reform movement is, and let me correct myself. I actually never, unless I make a mistake, talk about being in political reform. I'm in political innovation. And that's what I invite people to join, is this movement for political innovation. Innovation is breakthrough. Changing these rules is breakthrough. I like the sound of that. <laughs> reform, reform is too often been a Trojan horse for partisan advantage. So sometimes in our existing duopoly, you know, Democrats will be for a reform that might really help Democrats win, but not change the likelihood we get results or Republicans might be for a reform that will make it more likely Republicans win, but won't change behavior of winners. Innovation focuses on changing the results, not necessarily changing the winners. And uh, and innovation is breakthrough, and so that's what we're doing. Now, in this political innovation movement, and specifically final five voting, which we have to change first, we can't change these crazy rules and everything until you have people who have have different electoral incentives. So we start with the elections, this Constitution, Article One, gives all the power to the legislators. Well, to each state to make the rules of the game for elections. So each state can implement final five voting on its own. In half the states, they don't even need any politician to agree with them. Although I suggest many politicians. Ballot initiatives,
1: love ballot initiatives. You just get a bunch of people together.
0: Yes. Although I'm going to I'm going to give a word of caution on ballot initiatives in a moment. The second thing is. Uh, in any state, you can have legislation. And so, for example, in Wisconsin, we don't have ballot initiatives. We need to do it through legislation. And we have, um, you know, Dale and Danny, who I just mentioned, Dale Kuringa, Danny Reamer, co-sponsoring this bill. We have other Republican and Democrats co-sponsors already. And when uh, we eventually pass it and the governor signs it, then our federal delegation will be elected under these rules of the game. And Mike Gallagher, who wrote the foreword, is saying to the people in Wisconsin, yes, I'd like to be in a Congress where people come under these wow. rules of the game, which is amazing, I love it, right?
1: Wisconsin, look at that, yeah.
0: Yeah, Wisconsin. I mean, and we were a leader in the last, in the progressive era of reform, political reform, so I expect Wisconsin's going to be a leader again now. So here's the thing, in a legislative state, we started in 2017. These are not quick fixes. We need to get buy-in, and we're doing that bit by bit. And we have a plan, you know, where it will take anywhere from two to six years in a legislative state to get buy-in from everybody, to and everybody, from many people—grass tops, grassroots, grass middles, opinion leaders, elected officials, former[s], current[s], et cetera, republicans Democrats, Independents, broad buy-in, and then make the change. Here's my caution on ballot initiatives you can win a ballot initiative for any of these changes through brute force. Okay, so you can get enough money to get the message out and it's a good message, I mean, I think it should win, but you can get enough money to get the message out and make whoever you need to be the villain, to be the villain, to pass it at 51%. But then you've changed key parts of your democracy without really major buy-in necessarily. I would really love to see even the ballot initiative states take far more time in advance getting the buy-in across the spectrum instead of figuring out what coalitions they need to cobble together to get themselves a 50% plus one vote, which kind of usually leaves 49% of the people not liking it. So right when we're trying to get innovation that will allow us to have policies that we can broadly agree on and sort of move forward together, we're moving there by passing it in a bit of the same kind of brute force way. Again, look, I'll take innovation how it comes, and I totally support the ballot initiative in Alaska (laughs) right now. Alaska is going to vote on final four voting. You mentioned it in your op-ed with Bill Weld. Yep. They're voting on November 3rd. I call it the other swing state. Do we swing towards a functional democracy or not? So let's watch Alaska. And as you noted also, Massachusetts is going to vote on ranked choice voting. I'm totally happy about those. But I also don't want to see every ballot initiative fought in court after it passes. You go look at uh, some ballot initiatives that Kent Theory, a business person, uh, ran in Colorado and he started by getting a lot of support from, from lots of people across across ideology to sort of agree on the ballot language. So then when the people passed it, there was not sort of a manufactured opposition because there was, you know, work done ahead of time. And I just think well, that's respectful I, I, for the democracy. I mean,
1: I, I love getting buy-in, Catherine. At the same time, uh, we're short on... Uh, time. Time's not a luxury we have, you know what I mean? It's like like we, we've been laboring with this dysfunctional uh, legislature for a long time. And a- anything that's going to speed up innovation and efficacy, I am for. So I, I'm just going to throw that out there being like, look, I love getting buy-in too. But I mean, r- right now people are hurting and looking up and being like, why does it seem like no one's listening to us? Uh, and I think this would help um, our legislators actually listen to the people again. Um, So I'm a huge fan of I I mean, obviously, you're championing this stuff. Like, I I just I'm just not that worried about like the you know, like the uh, the 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 preparation of the carpet, so to speak. I mean, you know, (laughs) we just woke up and 51% of people in the state were voting for it. I would just be thrilled.
0: Well, and I would be thrilled too. again, I'll take it how it comes. Having said that, we're not really going to have ballot initiatives until uh, the next election cycle. Which is not 2021, you mean 2022. So yeah, how about sure. if you guys people who want to run a ballot initiative in 2022 start going now? And I know, agree with that
1: a whole I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh and I think I think that's why this conversation is so uh awesome and timely. Uh I'm um, incredibly grateful to you for uh championing these ideas that i think are tremendous your book uh, with michael was great um i have my copy over there in the bed i'm not gonna run over <laughs> the, the the poly the, but you have a copy behind you i can see it and you had the cup um, I have, the politics industry i have
0: two great books behind me i have uh this book called The War on Normal People. Oh, thank people. you.
1: That's very kind of you, Catherine. Yes?
0: Okay, so everybody buy <laughs> Andrew's book, of course. But um, And then, yes, this is our book, Michael's Mine, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Here's the thing. I want you guys to all buy this book, but because I want the change. All the authors' proceeds from this book go directly into... The Institute for Political Innovation to work for the changes. So I won't buy new shoes with this, um, and that, which which is what I'd like to. Say Another to great
1: you. reason to buy the book. One, it's a good book, and two, your your money is going to go to political innovation, uh, which we desperately need.
0: The the organization this these funds go into that you mentioned I founded in the introduction is called the Institute for Political Innovation. It's political-innovation.org. This institute. One of our main objectives is to help connect ideas to actual campaigns to make the changes. Legislative campaigns or ballot initiative campaigns for final five, like we just talked about. So, if people who are watching want to know if there's a campaign in their state so they can get involved, get to us at political innovation.org. You know, go there and you can get in touch with us or if you want to start a campaign, or if you want to be an enormous political philanthropist and donate, or a small political philanthropist and donate, come there and we can make, turn the idea into the campaign. So any of you who worked on Andrew's campaign may want to now work on a campaign to change the rules of the game to essentially make the world safe for democracy. To make the world safer, you know, innovation, et cetera, and, uh, and make the world safe for results, I would say. And that's that's what we'd love to partner with you guys on.
1: Make the world safe for results. I love it. Uh, and, and there are many folks in the Yang Gang who are going to take you up on this. Political-innovation.org. Uh, I am a huge fan of, uh, of anything that's going to make the people's votes matter more, which this 100% will. Uh, You know, you're a champion for lowercase d democracy. Grateful to you for it. And you're just getting started. We have a lot of work to do. But I I encourage everyone to buy the book. It's a great book. Uh, It makes a very compelling case for the fact that we're not going to see the results we want unless the incentives within the politics industry and the um, political system change. Uh, And these mechanisms will change them in a very real way and make our votes matter uh, so you and I will be in this for a while, Catherine, like, uh, you should know, like this was not like uh, Hey, let's have you on a podcast. And like, because w- we have to grind on these things. Uh, we know that these totes have changed, um, Sort of, sort of changes don't come quickly or easily, but hey, you know, like we're, we're gonna be here a while. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel I feel similarly to you, you know, when you're trying to get out a new and innovative idea, that's how I think those of us that are now on final five voting, we're like, has anybody heard of final five voting? Do you like it? Can we sell it to more people, you know? I like just... final five voting. That's that's fantastic. and And people do, I mean, it's definitely happening, but we just definitely need more and we need them faster to your point. Uh, we're the the clock is ticking on our democracy. Yes, the clock is ticking, our, people, and on our unity, I would say. Yep,
1: on our ability to come together and solve these problems, and, and our politics isn't helping. Our media is not helping. Social media is not helping, um, uh, but the mechanics of our elections are also not helping. Uh, and I, I'm a big process person. It's like if you. Uh, if you want a certain result, uh, then a- oftentimes, like the most important thing is what does the process look like? And is the process designed to deliver you results? And right now, right now, we can very clearly see uh, we've not been getting results for quite some time. Um, and again, you and Michael make a very convincing case that we shouldn't expect different results unless we have a different process.
0: Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me today. It's a true, true pleasure to talk to you and all of the people that have been interested in your work and really m- mobilized and engaged uh, in this system. Because in the end, that is what democracy returns to.
1: Yeah, I'm very, very, I, I'm, I'm very, very interested in your work. Uh, and all the folks, too, the folks you guys describe who look up and say, like, why, why don't we have a more dynamic system? Why aren't more points of view represented? Why does it seem like this duopoly? Uh, it has um, you no know, uh, permanent, ongoing, perpetual uh, control uh, o- over everything. You know, like the the mechanisms you're describing um, would help change it. Um, and for all the folks who've been looking around for a set of solutions, look no further than uh, than what you all are are building. Um, so consider me a friend and champion. Um, uh, cause I'm a, I, I am like, you know, we, we need, we need to restore our democracy in a, uh, literal sense.